0: Hello, thanks for tuning in for today's conversation with Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford about weight bias and weight stigma. In this episode, we discuss where these biases and stigmas come from, why they're so harmful, and how we all have roles to play in defeating them. I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Stanford today. She is an obesity medicine physician, scientist, educator, and policymaker at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. This episode is the second of a two-part conversation. In part one, we discuss understanding obesity, why it should be viewed as a disease, why it's so misunderstood, and how we can support those who are living with this disease. Dr. Stanford holds an MD, an MPH, and an MPA, and is one of the first national fellows in obesity medicine, which she completed after residencies in internal medicine and pediatrics. Dr. Stanford has received numerous scholarships and awards too many to list. A couple of notable ones include the Gold Congressional Award, the Harvard Medical School Amos Diversity Award, and the Massachusetts Medical Society Award for Women's Health. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Fatima Stanford.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation and digging a bit more deeply into the topic of weight bias and weight stigma. Can you start us off by just um, telling us where this comes from uh, and why you're so passionate about it? So absolutely, I, you know,
1: unfortunately, patients that have excess weight or persons that have excess weight, however you want to think about it as a doctor, I'm always thinking about it as a patient, um, are unfortunately face significant forms of discrimination secondary to their weight. Um, I have been active here, working both here at the state level here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but also at the national level to look at how weight discrimination and weight stigma actually affects numerous things in individuals' lives, from hiring practices, people are actively discriminating against those that have excess weight, um, to things like health outcomes. And so the goal is to figure out how do we reduce this bias that we have towards individuals that have excess weight, where we make assumptions about them just based upon the way they look um and so the key thing i always like to bring up as uh, a black woman who happens to be a physician scientist that we know that the most common form of bias here in the u.s is race bias but that is followed very very closely by weight bias and so let's just say we have a black woman who has obesity you can imagine the overlay between those two can be deleterious on many different fronts with regards to almost everything they encounter in their daily lives. And so mm-hmm. I feel like it is of utmost importance for us to begin to address this issue because like we know obesity rates are continuing to climb. We know that people with excess weight are continuing to, to and they'll be more than half the population very soon. So are we gonna mm-hmm. just discriminate against half the people that we encounter? And mm-hmm. if so, why? And mm-hmm. what, does that, what does that mean about us as individuals to judge literally the book by its cover?
0: So, what are some of the consequences that that you see for people living with obesity in terms of both um, the, the the impact i guess of weight stigma both on um, the psychological side as well as you know physical kind of tangible um you know healthcare consequences for example
1: absolutely i, I want to give some um examples because i think that these are really key um and i think that they speak volumes to what my patients experience um, when I first moved to Boston, I lived on the North Shore. And for any of those that know Boston, there was like a kind of like an Amtrak-like train that you take into the city when you live further out, um, much like the Long Island Railroad. If you live in New York City, are familiar with that. Um, and so every morning at seven thirteen, I would take this train into downtown Boston, and I saw a gentleman um, who I deemed one of to, as a dream patient of mine, um, as a as a fellow in obesity. I noticed this patient had very severe obesity, but he was one of the conductors and he, would, he was moving, always moving, and doing all these things every single morning I saw him. Um, of course, I thought it would be pretty presumptuous of me to go hand him my card and be like, hey, come see me. I thought that would probably be maybe biased. Um, so, you know, I just saw him. And then I wanted you to fast forward um, about three years from that time. I was no longer living on the North Shore, but I walked into my office. And when I walk in, I was like kind of a little bit anxious and then um, kind of excited because that dream patient, that conductor that I'd seen with very severe obesity, moving up and down the tracks and things of this sort was sitting in my office. So I say to him, I say, oh my gosh, you're the conductor on the commuter rail. And he's in his mother, he's in his mid forties, by the way, his mother was with him at this appointment and she starts to cry. And she starts to cry because I was the first doctor that she had ever been to him with this doctor with that ever believed that he was active because I saw it with my own two eyes. And so the reason why I think she was still attending his appointments was to be an advocate for her son to say, look, I know he has very severe obesity, but he does this and he does this and and really to really be there. But I walked in and within point two seconds mm-hmm immediately exclaimed, Oh my gosh, you're the guy that's always moving up and down with this. And, and she literally cried for the first 15 minutes of that hour long appointment. So here she was a son that she's had that struggles with his weight from the first time that, you know, we can start really plotting out weight, which is the age of two and has always struggled when he was seeing me that first visit, he weighed 550 pounds. Mm-hmm. You would be like, is there, is it cap- is he capable of doing the things he was doing? Absolutely. Obviously, I saw him every morning doing these things. Was he active? Was he sweating profusely? Definitively. But I didn't make a judgment. What I, I actually said like He was my dream patient, and here he was in my office. He has undergone several therapies. Um, he's now at 300 pounds, which people might see if you had these biased views. If you saw a 300-pound gentleman walking down the street like, oh, my gosh, he let himself go, and he needs to do a lot of work. But if you knew he was 550 starting off and knew that we had gotten 250 pounds that he has been able to maintain over the last five years, I would say, my gosh, he's done a phenomenal job. And that's where we've been able to get him to. He's, he feels wonderful at work now. He's able to do his job with significant ease. He has 250 pounds that have been deleted from his body that he's able to maintain. And you know what's also interesting? His mom doesn't have to come to his appointments anymore he feels comfortable engaging with me and with other doctors without his mom being present, Mm -hmm. which I think speaks volumes to someone who's now about to turn 50. So, I mean, that's, that is a really an illustration of what people experience. The presumption that they aren't who they say they are, that what they are saying must be inaccurate so much so that he as a middle aged gentleman Mm -hmm. had to bring his mom to his visits. Mm-hmm. So that's one illustration I'd like to, to bring up.
0: Yeah. Now in your book, you talk about um, the way that uh, people with obesity are portrayed in the media. And and I oh, also, I wanted to touch on that and um, share, I guess, something that I, I also wanted you to bring up. I don't know if this was a, your talk. I think it was from a while ago, something about the age okay. at which we start to show signs of bias. Oh, yes. I know, uh, yes. Bias. I know. I know that literature. Um, yes, is so sad. And so sad. Uh, just... A, <laughs> yeah. As I was, re- I was reading your book over the last few days, and it just so happens a, a personal story um, of being awareness of, of this stigma is on my mind now, uh, more so. And my, I mm-hmm. have two girls who are in kindergarten, and I noticed I was cleaning up some papers. There was a, a worksheet they were doing, and it was mm-hmm. rhyming words. Mat, cat, bat, and they had to put a little oh, picture bat. next to it. They were, they were cutting out a picture of a mat to show. Anyways. I've turned it over and there was the word fat and next to it was, yep. um, a clown, a very large clown. Mm. And it made me think about, um, what your book said about in the, um, actors and often being the comedian or being the, you know, the woman who yes. is crestfallen the and can't find yes. love. And, exactly. um, so here I thought my, my children are getting this, you know, in their kindergarten and class. kindergarten. And you must have yeah. twins. You must have yeah, I twins. do in the curriculum. And anyways, I thought, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I also made you wonder what you think about the word fat period.
1: Um, oh yeah, that's another word yeah. I delete it, but um, <laughs> except yeah. that it's the first three letters of my name, which is a little interesting. <laughs> um, like, so don't delete them from my name, please don't. I'm not Ema, I'm Fatima, but whatever. So um, so let's talk about this. Uh, yes, um, obviously, you know, weight bias in the media is acceptable and even funny, right? Like it's it's could portray as funny. Um, I won't name names of particular actors or actresses that have made their entire career off of really making fun of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there's a kind of a cast typing, right? Like certain people fitting in certain roles, they portray them doing things like eating an extra large box of pizza mm-hmm. and doing all of these things that that make them look... Um, less than stellar you know is Mm -hmm. what i want to say um and you know i mean we see this on you know even um late night comedy shows that may come on saturday night or other things you know this is this is how individuals with obesity are portrayed and it's, it's supposed to be funny and it's acceptable um, it would be less acceptable to blatantly speak about me as just a black person, right? This was, mm-hmm. you know, part of what we saw with blackface and things, you know, earlier in the, the 20th century and, and still playing out in fraternity parties and things, of course, um, but supposedly like behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Um, so the race bias piece is lesser, um, you know, a lesser piece. And I wouldn't say it's been eliminated, but the weight bias, it's, it's fine. Like we can say this, we can talk about people, we can laugh at their own expense, and it's it's perfectly acceptable. The problem is, is that that plays into the psychological well being of those that are not just playing those roles that are getting paid, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. however much to do the role, but into those that are watching who they may see someone that looks like themselves or have a body mm-hmm. habitus that's close to theirs. And it makes them devalue themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes my work when I'm working with them as a doctor who works with patients' obesity, I have to spend, I would say, eighty percent of my visit helping to undo those negative things that they've seen in the media that maybe Their family believes that their friends believe about them as they're continuously trying to address their disease. And so it's problematic. Let's go to your second question Mm -hmm. How early do we begin to see weight bias? About 36 months of age is when weight bias becomes very prevalent. And it's usually based upon parents, i.e., mom and dad, or whoever the caregivers and their anti fat stigma, this idea of stigma. And so, if you look at those studies that came out, um, like British British Journal of Psychology, psychology, for example, they looked and and looked at people starting at like twelve months of age and looked at them to about five years of age, and usually on average it's about thirty six months. And I often have parents say to me this is usually the response when I'm speaking to actual just parents, because there are there are oftentimes when I speak to parent groups and they'll say, well, you know, Dr. Stanford, I do not, I don't say anything negative about people that have obesity and I say, but it's also what you're not saying. And let me explain what I mean by that. So let's say you're watching a television show. Well, let's say the Oscars, I didn't get to watch the Oscars, but say you're watching the Oscars and someone that has obesity walks by and you don't say anything negative you also don't say anything positive. And then Regina King walks by in that stunning blue gown. You're like, oh my gosh, she's amazing. Look at how great mm-hmm. she looks. And then let's say another person with obesity walks by and then you don't say anything. And then, you know, Viola Davis walks by, like, oh my gosh, look at her in that red dress, you know. And so you didn't say anything mm-hmm. negative, but you also did not acknowledge that that person that has obesity, who also was probably dressed in a lovely gown, from some designer that for some exorbitant price that I wouldn't pay for a gown, but would definitely wear. If you guys want to just contribute gowns to me, I'd do that, (laughs) you know, especially (laughs) in the non-COVID era. Um, You know, you didn't say it. You didn't say, you didn't acknowledge their beauty. Um, And so when I say that to parents, they're like, ooh. And then they sit there and evaluate. They're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, don't say anything negative, but I also don't say anything positive. And it's that absence of speaking that they register Because Mm -hmm. you commented, not you particularly, but you as the parent commented Mm -hmm. on the, what you saw as positive attributes of X person who was stunning, stunning correlates to thin lean and their gown, let's just say at the Oscars or, you know, whatever, you know, award show. And so that's, that's Mm -hmm. more common. I'm not saying that some Mm -hmm. people aren't blatantly you know, exhibiting um, characteristics or talking about people using the word fat or obese or this, that or other about a person, but it's more common that people are just omitting any positive attributes Mm -hmm. to those individuals.
0: Mm -hmm. So I see what you're saying. And I mean, and sort of that celebrating, you don't even know that you're doing it. Yeah.
1: Celebrating, celebrating
0: thin and beautiful is really the other side of the coin. I mean, it's just two sides of the same coin Yeah, and not celebrating larger bodies. Mm hmm. Exactly. It's interesting. So, yeah, and that's interesting. I'm, I'm... Yeah, and that's
1: something that we don't think about. You know, we just yeah. don't, right? Like we're we're conscious. We're like, I'm not going to say that. Or even if it were like we talked about race bias, you know, you wouldn't say anything negative about the you know the person that happens to be black. But you also don't see anything positive that, oh, wow, they're gorgeous or that's mm. they're so stunning. Look at how wonderful they look. Viola Davis is mm. a, a darker skin hue, you know, like, oh, she's so gorgeous. And look at that skin. Mm. And you might not say those things, but if you don't say those things and they're like, OK, that must be bad. That that skin right. color, my skin color, which is a, a, a little bit lighter than hers, um, is still also not good or whatever it might be. And so that yes. same scenario plays into that that race bias piece, Um but in a different way, right? Like, but like you said, it's just if we we only say positive things and you know only for those that are that are white versus black, yeah. you know, we have kind of the same scenario. Yeah, yeah
0: I yeah. I I feel it's so important, and I and I feel so ill-equipped to raise my daughters right. in a way that's going to have, um, first of all, they're having a positive relationship with their own body, and right. second of all, not being judgmental about others. And I just. I don't feel equipped to do that. Um, I don't know where to turn.
1: Well, that's what we have. So this is where you go to my site that I have up. Actually, if you go to my Harvard um, webpage, I actually have resources as the um, anti-racism director for the neuroendocrine unit. I have um, a whole set of resources, particularly, for example, on race and how to raise children that are anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, there's a whole section on the site. Mm-hmm. And people, when you know, people in my division who range from, you know, someone who may check in people at the front desk in the unit to senior scholars and professors feel like, hey, wait a minute. all oh, these resources are great. Some of their kids are now, you know, adults. Um, and, and they're like, gosh, I wish I had had this. For those that have young kids, they're like, oh my gosh, I learned so much. I didn't I didn't feel like I had any tools. And now you've Mm -hmm. given me or empowered me with some tools that help me to do the work that I, you know, my parents may not have done with me. You know, one of the key things if we're talking about, I know we're swishing it a little bit and kind of doing this dance between race and weight, but I think they're so interrelated. Um, As a young black girl um, growing up in Georgia, I didn't have the opportunity to to try to to, ha- to be gradually introduced into my blackness. At three years old, the Klan burned a cross in my front lawn. And my parents had to explain to me at three what that meant, because the cross was supposed to be a good thing. So I didn't have the luxury of like, okay, well, you know, when she gets to X age, we can learn this. I had to learn quickly. And that's the the lack of privilege that I have in living in my, my black body of like, and for parents that are black and, you know, have black children, we don't have the luxury of being like, okay, well, you know, once they get to X age, because Mm -hmm. they'll be exposed too quickly. And I mean, they didn't expect three, three kind of feels a little bit early, but if you kind of go back to that weight bias piece, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to forget that at 36 months of age, it's actually not too far off from when Mm -hmm. that conversation should be had you know like in terms of when do we begin to have these conversations and they're tough and they're hard and they're not comfortable but it's in that discomfort that we make progress as it relates to weight bias race bias etc with our own starting with our own families that's the that's the group that we have the most direct impact on
0: yeah in your resources do you think a lot about um sort of the, just what the exposure I and mean, I'm thinking about my children have started watching Disney movies and the, the typical form of the heroines is just so stereotyped. No. Um, so yeah, the funny thing is my parents yeah. only
1: really lo- let me watch Disney movies growing up, but you know what I think that I really saw a lot more of the, the ones that had animals, you know, like lady mm. and the tramp or, you know, these types mm. of things. I realized that my parents did not buy, would not buy snow white. Um, mm-hmm. I never was allowed to have white dolls. Um, I never wanted any, but I guess I never even thought about it. But they were intentional of the all of the mm. dolls that I had when I was a little girl yeah. that looked like me, whether they were Cabbage Patch, which was pretty popular, or mm. Barbies or whatever. They mm. all were my skin color. Um, and they were intentional. I guess it was interesting. I remember my four-year-old birthday party. Someone tried to bring a white doll, and my parents mm. had me return it. Um, interestingly, it was a, a young black boy and his mom that it brought this, but they they my parents were had very strong convictions of me seeing myself in my in the in yes. my surroundings and and they saw that for my sister my baby sister's now forty but you know so we had we felt good about who we were we didn't feel as though we were lesser than similarly you know in terms of the movies we were watching we we didn't watch Snow White or I mean I knew what happened I mean you saw those the dwarfs and all the stuff. I mean, I've seen the books, but those were not movies that they actually purchased Mm -hmm. and put in the VHS in my Mm -hmm. home. Um, And so I think my parents, you know, I I should probably thank them after I I get off with you today. (laughs) I think they were really um, thoughtful about how they wanted their daughters. And it was just the two of us to see ourselves as beautiful and see ourselves as capable of really doing everything and being very mindful about what media images could detract from that. Um, yes. But I think growing up also in the, the 80s, um, I mean, I was born in the late 70s, but growing up in the 80s and the 90s, we had a lot of positive portrayals, for example, of black individuals on TV at the time. I mean, mm-hmm. Cosby's undergone some issues, but the Cosby show yeah. different world. I mean, there were so many yeah. different shows that that really just were, were prime time. They were central. Yeah. You saw yourself in these and you were like, oh, this is this is just the norm. I don't think that we have that same portrayal now. Um, I would say in the aftermath of, of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, et cetera, we're seeing some elevation uh, on, you know, on providers like Netflix, Hulu, et cetera. But they're still, we're really far behind what we were seeing back in the 80s and 90s, um, which is interesting. So we took several steps back.
0: Mm-hmm. And we haven't, and we don't we, have we, that for is, a yet. Yeah, but I, I see the parallels. It's it's sort yeah. of... Um...
1: Isn't it interesting? That's why I do yeah. both.
0: You can see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's very ingrained. It's, it's interesting to see how, how interrelated the, the work is. Um, so yeah, you're right. We don't have that for obesity. Um, I think we're starting to see more. And then there's, there's the secretiveness, you know, in terms of like individuals that may have used certain treatment strategies. So for example, there was a whole study that came out where they basically showed a woman and they said, you know, they kind of pulled people. If they told if they said to you hey this woman lost weight by doing it the good old-fashioned way she used diet and exercise and she lost 100 pounds then then people thought favorably about her in terms of hiring her if they found out that she had done surgery as the strategy to achieve that then all of a sudden she's no longer valid or she's not valued and so we have this (laughs) you know here we have a patient that that took you know a tool that she yeah. utilized, and if you found out that that was the tool, this this tool is viewed as a negative tool. And I see this on Instagram all, all you know, all the time. I lost eighty pounds naturally. As if that person that that needed some mm. tool, they must not be as good, or there's yeah. something defective in who they are. So much so that we see a lot of celebrities who do lose, I think, weight with surgery. They take six or seven years to tell us. Because it's such a bad thing, or they never tell us. And then
0: yeah.
1: those potential people that could be role models for those that yeah. might need an additional tool, they're not there, right? They're yeah. they're 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 not there. Not because they're not there, they're there. And I see yeah. it and I'm like, oh, that person did surgery. I'm like hundred yeah. percent sure. And then of course in the medical community, you know, you tend to know who's seeing who. So you kind of like, yeah. Oh yeah, that's who their surgeon was and that's who yeah. their obesity medicine doctor is. But we obviously we don't have the luxury to say it. It's, it's their personal choice yeah. to say it and they know they'll be viewed negatively if they say there are medications or if they say mm. they have had surgery and there are many public people. because Let me tell you, I'm taking care of a lot of them yeah. um, that choose not to. Um, yeah. And, you know, I have to respect their privacy, but I know that it would be uplifting to so many individuals that might mm. be on the fence. So. That's
0: interesting. I just did a post on, on social media last week about my own mm-hmm. struggles with fertility, because I think that's another, another area where oh, people are silent. They don't want to speak out about it. And then it, I am five years later, I finally decided I'm going to, you know, well, I have twins. Well, it's see, like, but you but you felt, yeah, you felt good. Yeah. You're
1: like, okay, yeah. I've done it. And then yeah. you're at a point where like you're past the, the rocky yeah. period, yeah. you know, if you've done IVF, you're, you're like, okay, yeah. well, and now we're down the road but but going through it i mean i, I, I understand like what when, when someone is actively going through it it's yeah. one thing it's yeah. different in the aftermath where mm-hmm. you're like oh my gosh well let me speak to it and i think last week was infertility awareness week right yes. so yes you know that was it makes sense you know for you mm-hmm. to say it and you know yeah. and using your platform to get people to to see that i'm not abnormal michelle obama yeah. did a really good job she talked about mm-hmm. You know, IVF for both Sasha and Malia. I mean, I think there were a lot of things as a black woman. You know, we don't usually hear this. You know, obviously there are certain resources that are needed for yeah. IVF also um, that uh, that may not be commonplace. And and so yeah. I just you know the fact that you know she used her platform to speak yeah. and normalize it to say, hey, yes. this is what I did. You know, Sasha and Malia yeah. are pretty famous. You know, yeah. um, <laughs> because their parents are famous. But you know, they're they you know, this is, this is, this normalizes it. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate and acknowledge the fact Mm -hmm. that you have normalized it too. That's just wonderful.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I want to be respectful of your time because I know you have a million commitments on any given day. And (laughs) this is, this has been great to to dive a little bit deeper into this really complex topic. So yeah, your passion, your passion for this topic is amazing.
1: No, it it really like, I think my patients, I think that's why I don't lose patients typically. Um, you know, I I see them as my family. I see Mm -hmm. them as part of, you know, I want to support them in such a way that when they're in my space with me, that they feel as though they they can, you know, really let their guard down and really have that candid conversation about what struggles they have. Because if I don't know those things, I can't really help them the best way. And and so... What's the point of the relationship of, you know, me being their doctor? I mean, they could just do whatever on their own if I'm not able to help guide them. And I tell them, look, it's going to be frustrating. There's going to be some days when you're going to be cursing me when you're not talking to me, but I want, my goal is to help support you. So, and this is why this work is so important.
0: And I think for for me, one of the um, most profound learnings from thinking more about weight stigma is that it's it's everyone's issue to deal with. It's not... Just an issue for people who um, are dealing with obesity as well. It's something for for everyone. It is, because
1: we're usually the, the, unfortunately, the perpetrators of the bias against those that have, you know, um, obesity. And so I will end with this last um, thought because I think this is extremely important. And um, I think it speaks to our vulnerabilities and how even those like myself who've dedicated their life to the work can be, unfortunately, contributors. Um, It was at a a conference, like a medical conference about five years ago, that a woman that I'd known since I was a little kid came up to me, she kept trying to pull me aside, she's a physician, Um, and it took her forever because i talk a lot, especially in conferences in the hallways, that's where people know how to find me, and then we have robust conversations, I spend more time in the hallways at conferences than actual in the meeting. Um, but I feel like, you know, you can't really talk to me. That would be disrespectful, right? Like (laughs) whoever's speaking. So I just go in the hallway anyway. So she finally pulls me aside after much prying. And she says to me, and I just want to give some context. I, um, grew up with this person in Atlanta. Um, we knew each other starting around the age of four or five. So she says to me, you know, Fatima, I don't know if you noticed, but I've always been, you know, pretty standoffish with you. And I just thought that was her personality. I mean, we were like in our forties. So I was like, I just thought that's who she was. I mean, different people have different personalities. I'm pretty gregarious and outgoing. And I just thought she was in the more reserved category. So I didn't really see it as like a problem. I just thought that was who she was. And she was like, well, there's a reason for that. So I'm, I'm gathering that this is not maybe who she is, you know, how I perceive her. She says, well, when we were five in dance class, you came up to me and told me that I was fat. And I wanted to to confront you about this. I also wanted to tell you that I felt like if you were capable of change and dedicating your life work, that anyone is capable of change. So this was a lot to process at once. As one of the biggest, no pun intended, um, international proponents of weight stigma and bias, um, to hear that I had contributed to my colleagues really hard life with with her weight um her weight is of normal weight status at this time but it was something that um that really highly affected her and she'd been holding this in for almost 35 years yeah and she told me that if i was capable of change anyone was capable of change which means that i'm like the bottom of the barrel Mm -hmm. um in her eyes which i can understand (laughs) um I don't think I am. I don't think that she thinks I am. I don't know. I need to talk to her. We we do have a cordial relationship, at least from my knowledge at this point. Um, but to hear that I had that impact at five and people are like, Oh, but you were five. And I'm yeah. like, but no, but she remembers." So it obviously, yeah. and I think about your, your kindergarten, you know, your girls, mm-hmm. um, the power that what children say to each other has on their life mm-hmm. can be unfortunate. And I, I never would have thought I would have said something of that nature. Um, I don't remember it. I do remember thinking of her as having severe obesity. I do remember that very clearly. I remember what she looked like. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that I vocalized that and hurt her mm-hmm. in the way that I did is is something that shows you that I guess for those that are listening, if I'm capable of change, anyone is capable of change. As, as one of the experts in this field. So I, I will say that um, even if you feel like, hey, there's work I need to do, we're all capable of making um, a better, a better I guess, choice and being better to those that are around us.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I, that story really emphasizes those early experiences and how words matter so much and people carry, with, carry them the rest of their lives.
1: For a long time. Yeah. So she, I mean, she, I'm sure I will never forget that I said this now that she told me, but mm-hmm. um, it's usually the person that's receiving that, that remembers, mm-hmm. right? Not the person that's delivering yeah. that message. Yeah. Um, I just saw right before getting on the show and then I will go. Um, there was a woman who was trying to teach her young girls about um, hurtful words and she had like a sheet of paper and she says, say, say something mean about the paper. And it was like, you have no friends. And so she would crumple a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, you're fat and she'd crumple it. And she did, she, and then she crumpled the paper. And then she said to the girls, she said, now apologize for what you did. And they were like, Oh, I'm so sorry. So she uncrumples the paper. And she says, did I fix it? And they were like, no, she said, this is why you can't bully. Meaning it's, wow. it's no longer that nice, pristine mm-hmm. paper that, that person had or that the mom had when she yeah. started it. Yeah. She straightened it out, it, it, but it still has lots of, cream, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of a little, you know, kinks in it and things of that yeah. sort. She didn't fix it by saying, sorry, they still feel that. And so I think that's yeah. really what I, I think about, especially in this weight bias um, world. And, you know, I thought it was a powerful lesson and they got it. They were like, Oh, so I shouldn't bully because you don't mm-hmm. fix it by just saying, sorry, it doesn't yeah. go away. It's still yeah. the person It lives with the person. So, no, and I heard great... this person in it and it, it hurts me to didn't know that I hurt this person because that's not, mm-hmm. Who I see myself as right or even how I envision myself as a young yeah. woman but um, or a young five-year-old a young woman a young child mm-hmm. um, but that's how she saw me yeah so
0: yeah well thank you again for your time yeah it's absolutely thanks so much with you okay take care okay